we're in Philippians chapter 3, so if you'd uh, kind of get your Bibles and find it there. The first paragraph is uh, what we got in front of us today. Um, there have been a lot of jokes made about the way Paul begins chapter 3 with the word finally, um, and then just keeps right on going for two more chapters. Uh, many have suggested that Paul really is a preacher. He doesn't have a clue what finally means. Um, but I don't think that it's all what he means. Uh, finally is not probably the best way to represent what he's doing here. Uh, there's a better phrase that kind of fits here, and it is the, the phrase, well then. And it's, it's always kind of in light of what he's been saying that he continues his other thought. And so uh, with that in mind, let's just, let's just read the first verse and uh, kind of add that phrase. It'll make sense. Well then, my brothers, rejoice to the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. We said from the very beginning of the study in Philippians that this book is a, is a theme of joy. Fifteen references in four chapters, 103 verses. It's over and over again that we see it. Um, joy has been on Paul's mind since the very beginning. We have 11 verses that are packed today with truth, uh, profound things. Um, but I don't want to rush through the verse that... Paul again comes back to joy and, and miss an opportunity here. Although in a couple of weeks we get to spend some time in it in chapter four. Um, but I want to just kind of pick apart verse one for just a minute uh, just to kind of remind you about joy, at least biblical joy, God's version of joy for his kids. I want you to notice, first of all, um, that joy is a command, it's an imperative. This isn't the first time you see that. It's not the last time you'll see it either. Chapter 4, verse 4 says it, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. It's an imperative. We are to um, rejoice in the Lord. Um, just to kind of highlight this, this is not a, a joy that is a personality trait. I mean, a lot of us like to hide behind, that's kind of not me. I'm more melancholy. I'm half empty. I'm, not, I'm that kind of person. And so you would, you would take a pass on the command to joy because you would look at joy as somehow a, uh, a way in which you're just formed, like unique to you, and that's not the case at all. Um, the, the other thing about joy is that it is not a circumstantial response. We'll, we'll get to look at this in later weeks weeks, but it isn't dependent upon how things go for you. This is not like you had a great day, I will have joy. In, in Paul's mind, joy is who we are. It's a spiritual birthmark. Joy, as we'll see over and over again, as Paul lays it out, is in spite of trouble. And so somehow it is the demeanor of God's people. People, sinners saved by grace, we have Joy, we rejoice in the Lord. So that's one obvious thing. The other thing that I want you to notice about verse one is that joy is a conviction. Do you see it says rejoice in the Lord? That in the Lord is the first time Paul ever uses that phrase. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of important pieces to that. In the Lord means um, that Jesus is the occasion and the source of our joy. Uh, Jesus makes all the difference about joy. He, he is the, the source of joy when all the circumstances would tell you something else. Uh, the grace of God that sinners receive is, is where it forms from. And so in the Lord is, is a key part of it, is our conviction and our confession that Jesus is Lord that causes us to react to the, all the things he gives us, including difficult things. The psalmist said it this way. David said, Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forgetting all, all his benefits. I mean, the point is, is that we consider the benefits of God in all circumstances, and we rejoice in the Lord accordingly. 
One last thing, and this never gets much attention, and it's the last phrase of verse one. When he says, to write these same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe to you. Um, I want you to know that, that this kind of joy is a defense for the believer. Um, it is the joy of the Lord that protects us from competing affections. Uh, there are always competing affections. There are things that present themselves as uh, this is where you go to find joy. This is where you go to find happiness. This is where you go to find meaning. And it always is in our face all day, especially in our culture. And uh, it's the joy of the Lord that pushes back on those lies. It is the joy of the Lord that pushes back on the deceiver that suggests that if you go there, you'll be happy. Finding your full and total satisfaction in Christ is a defense to the bad things that will ruin you and destroy you and disappoint you if you go to find satisfaction. Do you understand? It is a defense to us to have joy in the Lord. It keeps us from having our hearts broken. Nehemiah chapter 8 says the joy of the Lord is your strength, and the psalmist says that over and over again. The reality of it is that phrase, the joy of the Lord is my strength, is underappreciated in the church. That this spiritual birthmark we were given at conversion really is a defense against those other affections, those other ways, those other temptations, and those disappointments. Does that make sense? So uh, obviously we've got more to say about joy, and we'll get to that in a couple weeks. But just remember verse 1. It's a lot of help to us. Okay, verse 2 um, sounds odd. It almost comes out of nowhere, and it marks an amazing change in mood for Paul, it appears. He goes from telling us to rejoice in the Lord to this sentence. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, nobody's quite sure uh, what sets Paul off so suddenly here, what transitions him from talking about joy to uh, to these particular people he calls dogs here. Perhaps it's when, when, uh, when he's mentioning the joy of the Lord being our strength, um, being safe for them, uh, his mind immediately goes to what's not safe for the church and what's not safe for the church is another gospel. Perhaps that's how he got there. Like anybody would suggest that somehow there's a good news without Jesus alone, that's what's not safe. And so of all things that rile Paul, and if you've read his works all the way through, you see that nowhere does he get more angry ever, intense ever, than when he's talking about someone who messes with the confession that we make that Jesus is our only source of hope. And he gets pretty riled about that. Um, what we do know here, though, is that the people that Je that. Paul is referring to are this group called the Judaizers, and he's been dealing with them for years. A Judaizer was someone who, uh, let's say a Jewish Christian or pretending to be Christian Jew, we're not really certain where they are, um, who would say, um, Jesus, yes, but you have to be circumcised and you have to obey the law. So it's the trifecta of those things that equals your salvation. And so they have infiltrated the church and they've tried to tell the church that Jesus alone isn't enough. You need to do other things. So obedience to the law is one of them. And uh, Paul has dealt with them over and over again. They're first mentioned in Acts chapter 15 where, where Luke tells us that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Anybody got a problem with that sentence? You should. Unless you do the customs of Moses, there is no salvation. Sounds like another gospel, and it is. In fact, Paul reserves his strongest language um, that we know of in Scripture towards these Judaizers in the letter that he wrote to the church in Galatia. 
In fact, the whole essence of that letter is a warning, is a cry. It's like a pastor who's so um, concerned for the well-being of the sheep that he gets really riled. And he says this in Galatians chapter 1, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you've accepted, let them be under God's curse. The word curse is anathema. Anathema means damned to hell forever. Of all words the apostle could use to describe the people who suggest there's something other than Jesus alone, he says, let them be lost. There couldn't be harder words for that. These are the dogs, these are the evildoers, these are the mutilators of the flesh that somehow show up from time to time in Paul's letters, and they're clearly here. And it's clear that Paul feels strongly about it by the words that he uses, and they're, they're kind of like strategic in the sense that they're used as like zingers to the uh, Judaizers who hang around the edges. And he, he basically undermines, undermines everything they find their strength in. Uh, he, he uses the word dogs, and, and I don't know what you think of when you think of dogs, but they, these dogs are not the cute kind of lap pets that we have in America, okay? These are unclean street scavengers. That was a dog. So he's saying about these Judaizers, they're unclean people. They claim themselves to be righteous and holy by their actions. He calls them evildoers. And he goes after circumcision, which they hold up in pride, and he says it's a waste of time. All they do is mutilate flesh. They accomplish nothing with God. And those statements, you've got to know, when the church in Philippi reads this, it's got to get their attention too. This is the ultimate pastor trying to help the sheep not go far away. Um, he wants to make the strong statement to wake them up. Um, he was going after that in such a specific way. Now, I know um, Paul's words sound strong to us, but... I want you to know why he says it the way he does. Because the gospel is that important. Everyone likes the sound of good news um, until the good news is so exclusive that it only comes one way. To suggest that maybe Jesus has an option for you or that he is one of the many, you know, things out there that you can select from. You can add Jesus to your collection of already held convictions and no, no harm, no foul. God will love you. He'll cover your bets, right? It's insurance, right? Jesus and whatever you want. Well, I want you to know that's not possible. The gospel is Christ alone. It. By grace alone, through faith alone. That's it. That's all that we have. And so Paul is obviously riled because of the importance of the gospel, but I want you to see the shepherd's heart in this. He loves the church. And nothing, nothing moves him more than having someone come in and suggest that there's another gospel than the one you were preached about. And so he gets after it. And his strong words are, are reserved for those who would make even one tiny adjustment to Jesus plus nothing. And you've got to say it that way. You've got to confess it that way. Jesus plus nothing. And it seems like we should stop here for a moment. And I suppose it could deserve more time than I'm going to give it. But let me just ask you a question and let it haunt you for the rest of the morning. Um, is there anything? Is there anything? Anything at all other than Jesus alone that you're trusting in?
I wouldn't know that. And I'm not certain the people around you would know that. But down deep in the core of you, you would. And God knows. And the reason why you need to answer that question is because whatever you find is plus Jesus is in the way of Jesus. You can't have him in anything else. Do you understand? Okay. Let's move on. I'll let that simmer um, for a while. Verse 3, Paul goes on to compare the group of people that he's getting after, those mutilators of the flesh, and what he describes as true believers. Um, he calls them the, the circumcision. We are the circumcision, verse 3, who worship the, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He is simply talking about the change of heart that God brings on his people by his Spirit. And he's saying that's what God does compared to the mutilators of the flesh. And he uses three particular phrases to describe those who follow Christ. One of them is that we worship by the Spirit of God. Makes sense, right? When God radically changes us, he takes out the dead, stony heart, replaces it one that beats for him. He gives us a living heart. In fact, Paul talks about it in other ways, and you can finish this, that in Christ you're a new what? Creation. Brand new. You were dead in your transgressions and sins and he wakes you up to new life by the power of the Spirit. That is the work of the Spirit in you. He lives in us. He makes us true worshipers of God. He takes our pathetic prayers and our weird sentences and our small worship and he translates it and offers it to the throne. That's what the Spirit of God does in us. He says we're also those who glory in Christ Jesus. Real followers of Christ boast in nobody else. Nothing else. Not what we do or what we've done. We don't boast in that. We don't boast in even the things we consider good, the things that are changing in us. We don't even look around in the mirror and go, hey, God, a lot, a lot of change in my life since I met Jesus. We don't boast in the change. We boast in one thing and one thing alone, Christ and nothing else. I'm happy that he's doing things in me, but I boast not in anything but Christ. You understand? And then one last thing. Paul says that we put no confidence in the flesh. Now that sounds like he's just repeating himself, but I would suggest it's not. It's the flip side to boasting in Christ. The flip side is putting no confidence in us. And it should be obvious, you know you can't do both. You can't boast in Jesus while you try to present yourself. You can't. And, uh, and you know why you can't. You already know this. The scriptures tell you. Because if you try to present yourself you fall short. No matter how good you are, no matter how much you've accomplished, no matter how much you know, everyone falls short of the standard of God, the glory of God. So we put no confidence in us while we boast in Jesus. You guys understand? Okay. All right. Now, remember, in the mood that Paul is writing, he's still riled about the false teachers, these Judaizers. And... Uh, and so he's beside himself with thoughts about this, and it's sort of like these next three verses are a way of Paul saying, you gotta be kidding, right? You, you seriously gotta be kidding. You wanna try to keep up with the holy standard of God by your own human effort? You can't even keep up with me. That's sort of what these next three verses are. Like, you think you can match God's standard? You can't match mine. And this is what he says in verse four through six. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's a statement. Would you agree? That's an impressive statement. For one, I can't imagine anybody ever like bowing up and saying something like that. But what's more mind-blowing that he said it is that he's not exaggerating. Some people like to boast in themselves and they always have to put a little sugar on it. You know what I'm saying? Like you got to make it look a little better because you know you and you know the real you and so you got to pretend your way through it. Paul's not exaggerating here. He states seven things, particularly as his confidence in the flesh, if there was such a thing. Four of them are really about his pedigree, where he's from as a Hebrew. Three of them are about his efforts. So in the totality of what he offers as a comparison of what man can earn, he puts them out there as the exceptional, okay? He says things like this, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he's an insider from birth. He wasn't, he wasn't converted from paganism to Judaism. He came at it from the birth, all right? I'm an insider. Of the people of Israel, he was racially pure. He was part of the chosen people of God. Again, insider language. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin happened to be the only son of Jacob who was born in the promised land, right? Saul, King Saul was a Benjamite. Paul got his name from Saul. That's where he started, Saul. So he, he looks at this whole thing very carefully and says, if there's any connection to lineage, I got that. I got the inside track. That's who I am. A Hebrew of Hebrews, trained under the best of the best, well-educated. He grew up with all the righteous advantages, sold out for the whole thing. And then he says that as to the law, he was a Pharisee. Pharisee means set apart one. He was a part of the most important, impressive group of people in Israel. He was an average. His efforts was like in front of everyone. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Set aside that he was persecuting the church for a second. Whenever you see someone is passionate for the cause that they believe in, you look at it and you go, that's noble. And what he was passionate about was the law of God. So far, I'm impressed. Passionate. He built a reputation on following the law of God. And here's the kicker, how he ends this whole thing. As to righteousness under the law, he says, I'm blameless. Now, Paul is not saying that he is perfect. He's not suggesting that he's never, ever sinned. What he's saying is out of the hundreds and hundreds of laws that were required of God's people, he did them all. And whenever it applied to the rituals and the specifics about forgiveness, he did that too. All the procedures that you were required to do to clean up your act and make yourself presentable, Paul did all of that blamelessly. He left nothing undone. Are you impressed? Here's what Paul does. He puts it out there in comparison to those who suggest that something other than Jesus alone is enough. He says, you gotta be kidding me with that. One writer said that Paul declares his righteousness under the law as certain as a circumcision. And you know how certain circumcision is, right? There's no denying that thing. So, in our vernacular, we might say it this way, that Paul was a blue chip, first round, can't miss Hall of Famer, law keeper. That's who he was. So if there was any possibility of confidence in the flesh, Paul says, it would be someone like me. And yet, you know what I think? I got no hope in me. And if you're, a, if you're one of the people in Philippi and you're hearing like the rumblings of the false teaching around you that there's something else other than Jesus exclusively alone, 
And then Paul just launches into it, calls them out by name, and then he says, listen, if there's any shot at climbing a ladder to God, they can't even keep up with me, and I reject it. I couldn't do it. It's not true. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I want you to notice, first of all, that Paul isn't saying that who he is and what he's done isn't as important as Christ. Like, hey, just want you to know, I know I come in second. What I've done comes in second. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is all that I've ever done is rubbish. The word is dung. It's, it's crap. Everything I've done amounts to nothing. It's an absolute waste. It has no merit at all. It's not, not just not as important. It's not important at all. It's in the way. It's sort of like if Paul had an accounting, an accounting ledger. And before he came to Christ, he looks at the account and he goes, all of my credit sides, I'm full, I'm full, man. I got no liabilities. Everything's blank, right? Black, black, black in my efforts. And then he says, I met Christ. Suddenly all that swapped. And all of my good stuff went into my debt pile. And the only good I got left is Jesus. He's my good. He's the only good anyone could confess. Um, Which, by the way, is true for every one of you in here who claim Christ. If you're a Christian, you are saying you have nothing. If you're a believer, you're saying you uh, bring nothing to the table. If you're a Christian, you're saying you are nothing without Christ. That is the narrow way. Jesus' very first words, or blessed are the poor in spirit, they'll see God. Poor in spirit, bankrupt people, those are the words we use. I got nothing. I got less than nothing. If God were to search my heart and my motives and my actions, he would see lack, a negative version of lack. And that's true of everybody. And and that's what Paul wants us to, to know is how he sees things. There's something else I want you to see in these verses. Paul counts uh, these things as rubbish not because they're bad, but because they're in the way of Christ. I mean, just go through them a little bit. Who he is and where he, where he comes from, not in and of itself bad, is it? Being a man of God's law, that's not bad in and of itself. I mean, separate the killing Christians part, but zeal, passion for God's law, well, that's not bad, right? We would say that ultimately even him being righteous under the law, like doing the work of a religious person, isn't necessarily bad. Seeing what God says and trying to obey it, that's not bad. But... What Paul says is all of it's in the way of Christ. And I would just ask you a couple of questions this morning. What's in the way for you? Is it easy for you to say Jesus alone, but you got your other things, with your arms around your other things? What's in the way of Jesus alone for you? Is it possibly your knowledge? You know, some people just love what they think. They love their thoughts. And so their greatest company is their own mind, and they, they're really intelligent. And so, Jesus, you're lucky you got me on your team because I'm really smart. I can really contribute. Do you, is it Jesus plus your knowledge? Is it Jesus plus your money? Is it Jesus plus your story? You know, we're in a culture now who loves our stories, man. We got mechanisms for our stories. 
And so we shape an identity around something other than Christ. And so my story is also who I am. And uh, so it's a Jesus plus thing. Well, how about this question? Can you count all of it rubbish compared to knowing Christ? Not just not as important. Can you count it as garbage? Can you call it out? I think that's what Paul does here. Possibly, maybe you're afraid to let go of what you think you, you contribute to the story of your salvation. If that's true, then um, I want you to be encouraged by verse 9. Here is our confidence. And Paul says, and be found in him. That's what he wants. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, from God, that depends on faith. The righteousness that we all need comes only one way. It doesn't come through me. It doesn't come through my efforts. It doesn't come through my obedience or my law keeping. It comes through Christ alone. It is Christ's righteousness credited to me. And it happens by faith alone. Now, every single week in communion, we try to say something like that. Almost every sermon, I think every sermon I preach, I try to tell you the good news in such exclusive terms that Jesus is for you and he's transforming you without you. Like you, you are one of those, just like I am, we are these people who are so broken in our sin that if he doesn't do it all, we don't have anything. We try to say these things over and over again. But church, I just gotta ask you, please don't get tired of hearing about this. There are lots of open-handed issues in the church. This ain't one of them. What, what Paul is like really narrowing the focus on here is what it is to believe the gospel, the good news. It's exclusive. It is only this, that your sins were transferred to Jesus and God's wrath bullseyed on his son. What you deserve, what I deserve, all of my sin, the, the sins of all of God's people were somehow transferred to Jesus, imputed to Christ, so that on the cross, he is bearing every drop of the wrath of God towards sin, as he should. At the same time, the greatest truth I ever heard was that he was able to transfer the righteousness of Christ to a bankrupt soul and make me as holy as Christ. That's a wonderful truth, right? It's an amazing truth. We confess it all the time. It's how Paul talks about it in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who wasn't a sinner, took on the consequence of being a sinner so that we could have his righteousness. That's what Paul says. In verse 9, Paul says, God knows that none of my quote-unquote righteous acts were righteous enough, so he gave me a righteousness that was. And the only righteousness that's good enough is Christ's. So I don't do this very often, like uh, throw a warning out, but I'm going to do it today. So let's hope this leaves a little bit of a mark on your, on your brain. Um, I, I get a little nervous in, in my pastor mind for our culture, our world, our, not our church, but the church. And everything you just heard me say 
that I'm watching your heads bop up and down, that you're, you're like giving me the impression you believe. You know what it takes to slip away from this? Hardly anything at all. So let me just leave a warning with you because I don't do it very often and maybe you'll never forget this. I want you to watch out for people who say this isn't true. I want you to have the discernment to have the ears that if anyone suggests that there's another way other than Christ alone and the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by faith, run. And you might say, well, Tim, you're kind of getting a little exaggerated. I don't, I don't think I am. I mean, there's a lot of writers in our world suggesting other things. There are theologians who have a lot of ears and they say what they want to say. I don't know what they mean, but they say the wrong thing. Things like justification is not about being declared righteous here and now in Christ. I don't know what they mean, but that's not the way to say it. Or they suggest that works have something to do with your salvation or that Christ's righteousness isn't imputed to you. That's wrong, 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 wrong. I don't know what he means, but it's wrong. And you should have the discernment to see that. We are all sinners separated from God by our sin, and if we don't have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we have nothing. Okay? That's the first warning. Second warning is I want you to watch out for people who don't think they need the imputed righteousness of Christ. Um, people who boast or brag in their life or their reputation or their church or their accomplishments. We all know people like this. Sometimes they slip into this category called legalist. And these people are people who think you're doing it right when you're doing it like them. You know those people? There's a way to live, live like me, and it's not the way of Christ. I want you to have heads up for that. Those things will destroy you. So I'm not Paul. I don't want to be Paul. But I get anxious. I'm 58 years old in August. I get anxious that the church will slide away from things. And if we don't make this confession together and have the discernment together to say wherever it is, I'm going to call it out. Does that make sense? Don't be nervous. I love you. you that makes sense? Okay. All right. Let's look at how Paul finishes in verses 10 and 11. He says that I might know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It sounds kind of weird for Paul to say that I might know him because Paul has known Christ for 30 years. That's a pretty long relationship. But you'll understand what he means really is that he just wants to know him more. This is what love does. Love always wants us to go deeper and farther, right? That's what love does. I mean, it's the, uh, it's the longing of knowing. And if you've been married a long time, you know what this looks like. You start dating somewhere in your life, and you've spent months trying to figure each other out. You end up liking each other. You end up getting engaged. You get married, and you've begun a long journey of getting to know each other. And it is the longing of knowing over years and years and years that you can say, like Paul, at least humanly speaking, I want to know her. I want to know him. Paul has known Christ. It's not that he doesn't know him. He's just so madly in love with what Christ is and who he's, what he's done for him. He says, I just I want more. Whatever it is, I want to go farther. I want to go deeper. So it's a longing of knowing. I want you also to notice this next phrase. This is the uncomfortable one that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. I want you to notice that power comes before suffering, but suffering is coming. This isn't a popular sermon, but I gotta tell you what the scriptures teach us. In uh, 
First Thessalonians, Paul says that we were destined for suffering. You were here for this in chapter 1, verse 29, but I'm certain we all forget this one when Paul says, for it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In, in Paul's mind, suffering is an absolute essential part of being a Christian. That in God's loving way, in God's loving time, he is going to bring it to pass in our life. And he says, I want to know Christ, and I want to share in his suffering. The word share is fellowship. And so if you get the idea of what Paul's asking, he's saying, listen, there is an intimacy and a closeness in suffering that I will not know unless I go through the trouble. So... He understood that suffering wasn't bad, that it was a sign of grace and a revelation of divine intimacy. But who wants it? I mean, come on. Who would ever look at suffering go ahead of time and go, please, Lord, load me up. I'd love me some suffering. And if you're honest and you even like predict that it probably will happen, how many of us think, oh, I'm ready for it? I can handle it. I mean, we're all wimps when it comes to this thing beforehand. We look at it and we go, I don't know if I can handle it. And I understand that. I think that's normal. But I want you to see that the resurrection power comes before the suffering. The power of God to overcome and to see and perceive and hold on to the truth in the midst of trouble, it comes before the suffering the power that raised Christ from the dead is in us and with us, even in our suffering. One writer said it this way, unless we actually go through our own personal crosses, we won't experience the many resurrections that take us deeper with Christ. And that's true, isn't it? Unless I don't suffer in ways and circumstances that God in his sovereign time and way plans for me, I won't see the power, nor will I get the closeness. They're all connected. Fellowship of sufferings are all connected. Now, you might look at suffering and say, I don't get it, I don't want it. Who could say something like Paul? The only people who could say something like Paul is people who've suffered. I mean, this is where everyone else who suffers more than me should preach this sermon because they'd be better at it. People who truly go through it know something. You and I all know people who have or heard of someone who has, and we look at their story and go, I couldn't survive it, I totally get it. I totally get why you would say you could survive it. But you look at them and they go, they seem to be thriving in it. It's not like the circumstances have changed much. It's not like everything's better and somebody paid them for their suffering. They're still under it. But somehow they're growing in it and there's a closeness in their conversation about God. They talk about how he fills them up, how he meets them in their trouble that you wish you had, right? Like they seem to be close to him. And that is how it works. These people are living with the attitude that Paul started this whole paragraph with, with joy and grace. And that is what the fellowship of suffering produces. It's a closeness to his power and an intimacy with Jesus. I'm certain we'll have more time to talk about suffering in the uh, months and years to come. So brace yourself for that. Verse 11, let's wrap this up. Here's what he says. Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Maybe a little weird way he said this, but this isn't Paul doubting the resurrection. He's certain of the resurrection. Here's what he doesn't know. He doesn't know all the events he's going to have to go through to get to the resurrection. Resurrection is certain. How I get there, not so certain. Um, 
but I'm willing to go through anything to get to it. You get the point? That's how he describes it here. The strong longing you see in this verse isn't Paul wanting the resurrection. You've got to get this. Isn't wanting the resurrection for itself. Some of us love the fire insurance. Some of us love the idea that I, won't, I will spend eternity with a new body and blah, 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 blah. Here's what I want you to know. Paul's longing enthusiasm wasn't just to be raised from the dead. It was to meet the prize. His name is Jesus. He's the prize. It's every wonderful thing you've read in this paragraph. Nothing but Christ alone. Nothing but the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. I bring nothing. I'm bankrupt. I, all my good works are filthy, dirty dung. I have Christ. Can you long with Paul that someday you will be resurrected? And the prize, the one you'll be overwhelmed with, that you won't be able to contain, will be that you get Jesus. He's everything. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that these words have been written for us to remember. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our God and he is our prize. We confess him as Lord and Savior today and we give him all praise and honor. Amen.